Uh, let's ask God now uh, to help us with his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, pray in your mercy uh, that you would help me to speak your word now truthfully and clearly. And we pray uh, that we would receive it as your word, uh, the truth about yourself and ourselves and our world. And in your mercy, uh, we would conform our thinking uh, to its truth and become people who are actually mature in our thinking, people who can grow up and through knowing your will do the good which will bring you honour and glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Jesus is often criticised through his followers. Uh, it's not as direct but just as real. For example, people today uh, find fault with Jesus by finding fault with his followers' views, for example, on sexuality, that sex is to be reserved for marriage between a man and a woman, or with their views about the sanctity of every human life. And what's at stake in that criticism is not just whether this or that act is right, but fundamentally different views of the good life, of what allows people to live the best and most fulfilling life they can. For many uh, modern secular people, that life is found in maximising personal human freedom and autonomy, allowing them to live free from any authority external to themselves, including God, so that they can express who they really are by being true to themselves. And Jesus' followers, by saying that the good life, the life we were created to live, is found by living not true to your own desires, but true to Jesus' instruction for his God's appointed ruler over all and the one who can give eternal life, Jesus' followers then are at odds with and can even frustrate that secular version of the good life by not accepting or affirming people's choices. And so for many modern people, Christians and Jesus as the source of what they believe should be criticised as enemies of humans living the best life they can. But criticism of Jesus through his followers is not new. Uh, that's what is happening in our passage when the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? They're actually saying, what's wrong with you, Jesus, that you can let this happen? Why aren't you insisting on living by the tradition of the elders? And for the Pharisees, the issue in their criticism is not hygiene. They're not coming to Jesus and saying, look, don't you know there's a pandemic on? Get these blokes washing their hands. That's not the issue. The issue for the Pharisees is actually the same as it is for Jesus' modern critics. What makes for the good life? The life as we were meant to live it, the life of blessing. And for them the answer was, Life lived in covenant relationship with Israel's God was the good life, for that was what would guarantee their present and the future. Spare them now from the disastrous judgments the nation had experienced in the past and give them, they hoped, a share in the resurrection. And the guide to that life for them was the tradition of the elders, 
a body of oral interpretation and application of the law of God that some even claimed went back to Moses and had been handed down by a succession of teachers of the law. That tradition, they said, showed you how to be God's holy covenant people by keeping God's law in every area of life and so allowed you to retain God's favour, keep living the good life. And so although the law did not command hand-washing, the Pharisees' concern for hand-washing was a concern to maintain the ritual purity, the holiness the law said God demanded that was needed for God to be present amongst his people. You must be holy, God had said in Leviticus, as I am holy. And also in Leviticus chapters 11 to 14, the Jews were taught that contact with some objects like corpses or carcasses of some unclean animals or people who had certain kinds of discharges could defile you, make you unclean and so exclude you from God's holy people unless it was dealt with. So knowing you could have accidental contact with someone or something unclean, contact you may not even know you've had, you know, just brushing against someone with a discharge in the marketplace which would make you unclean, and knowing that the law said that those who'd been touched by someone unclean should wash themselves to cleanse themselves and that the law also prescribed washing by the priest before they performed their duties. The tradition of the elders had developed by saying that you could maintain your cleanliness, your purity as a good Israelite, by practising washing your hands before you ate and performing other washings, as Mark points out in verse 4. So in the tradition of the elders, this washing of hands is not a small issue. You see, if purity, holiness, defines who are the people of God and being pure undefiled is the way for the nation to enjoy God's blessing and not his judgment, they're not living according to the tradition. The disciples here, not washing their hands, actually threatens the identity and well-being of the whole people by having the unclean living amongst them. And Jesus' failure to teach and endorse the tradition of the elders, potentially saying that there's another way to be the people of God than obedience to the law, challenges the whole understanding of how you find and live the good life and also the Pharisees' influence as guardians of that tradition. So in their question, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands, they're saying to Jesus, why don't your followers endorse and support what we know to be the path of blessing, the way to live the genuine human life, the life of being at peace with God? Are you, Jesus, an enemy of people living a blessed and fulfilled life, an enemy of people's happiness and security? Now, how does Jesus respond? Well, as you heard, it's a twofold response. Firstly, verses 6 to 13, Jesus says to them, you're relying on the wrong authority, human teaching, to instruct you about what makes for the good life, the life pleasing to God a reliance that shows your heart is far from God already. 
And secondly, in verses 14 to 23, Jesus says, defilement, yes, it is an issue for God is holy. But you, Pharisees, have a wrong focus when thinking about what defiles, what makes you unfit for God's presence. And you are not radical enough in thinking about the source of that defilement. Now, those same two points are also at issue in modern criticism of Jesus through his followers. Always the issue is, what is someone's source of authority for saying what makes the good life? Is it God the creator or is it human opinion? Oh, and secondly, does what is taught really grapple with the radical root of the human problem, with what will always defeat achieving the good life on our own? So there are actually two important issues and two, in a sense, pillars of Christian thinking. Well, Jesus answers, it said, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it is written. This people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. So Jesus starts by calling his critics hypocrites. Play actors, people whose actions give lie to their words, who are pretending devotion to God while living self-interested and self-reliant lives that disobey God. You are, says Jesus, the same kind of leaders of God's people Isaiah spoke of when speaking in Isaiah 29 of God's judgment on Jerusalem and its leaders in his day. You see, those leaders were people who did not comprehend what God was doing, even though they had a show and appearance of worshipping God. Their worship was all lip service for their hearts. That is, their wills and thinking were far from God. The love of God, which is at the heart of covenant relationship, was not in their hearts. And the evidence of that was that they taught as doctrines human commands. That is, in place of obedience to God, they put obedience to what humans taught, even dressing that up as obedience to God. See, they were making human teachings equal with the living God's word. And so they displaced God's word from ruling their relationship with God. And this meant that their trust was actually in people, in humans, not God. That they were living to please people, creatures, not God, their creator. And it also meant that their worship of God was vain, empty, was not reckoned by God as worship at all. And says Jesus to the Pharisees, with your insistence on the tradition of the elders, this is exactly what you are doing, abandoning the command of God to hold on to human tradition. So he's saying your tradition, rather than help you obtain the good life, the life of peace with God, makes your zeal for God's law empty, not reckoned by God as obedience at all. Now, that would have been a bit hard to take if you were a Pharisee because you thought you're the good blokes. You are the champions of the law. So Jesus gives them an example of their practice to show them that their commitment to tradition actually undermines genuine obedience to God. 
So he says to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your traditions. For Moses said, honour your father and your mother. And whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. So God's will, says Jesus, is pretty clear in relation to parents, isn't it? Said here in Exodus 20 verse 12, the fifth of the ten commandments spoken by God himself that speaks of the positive duty to honour parents. And you see it in Exodus 21.17, which speaks of the community's duty to uphold that honouring of parents by putting to death those who refuse to, who dishonour their parents with their words. But, says Jesus, while well, God is clear, the effect of your tradition is to lead people to disobey this clear will of God revealed in his word. You say, if anyone tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is korban, that is an offering devoted to God, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many other similar things. Jesus speaks of the practice of korban, that is the practice of making a vow to devote something to God in effect to the temple. And a person could do that just by declaring it korban, given to God. And while still available for use by the person who declared it to be dedicated to God, anything dedicated to God in this way was off limits to others, something which others could not use or benefit from. In this case, someone might dedicate something to God, a field or house, for example, declare it korban, and this would prevent his parents receiving any benefit from it, deny them any claim to it or its produce or revenue, while the one who declared a korban could continue to enjoy its produce. Now, plainly, this is open to cynical manipulation. When people fell out with their parents, they could spite them by depriving them of support under the guise of religious devotion. And what's more, and we know this from later rabbinic writings, the scribes ruled that even if a person changed their mind about something that they might have done in anger, they couldn't change the dedication. They could not return it to being used to benefit their parents. That is, they could not do what God clearly commanded, honour their father and their mother. The outcome of their commitment to their tradition, says Jesus, is you nullify the word of God, the command to honour your parents by your tradition that you have handed down. The Pharisees, says Jesus, are doing exactly the opposite of what they were claiming to want to do by relying on their tradition. It was there, they said, to help live a life pleasing to God, to help in keeping God's law, but in reality... It set aside God's word and made it of no effect in their lives. More, rather than keeping them in covenant relationship with God where they could enjoy his peace and blessing, their reliance on tradition brought behaviours that provoked God's judgment. Now, how did this happen? How is this zeal for the law? How, how is it that their zeal for the law could be corrupted into disobedience to the law, that their attempts to please God, to live the good life, actually become causes of their condemnation by God, threaten the good life that they're seeking. Well, Jesus answers that important question in the second part of his response when he speaks to the, of the heart as the source of defilement. 
But I want to pause to say that outcome, disobedience to God that provokes his judgment and means you won't attain the good life, that outcome is inevitable where you make any human teaching equal to God's word, where loyalty and faith in human words displaces loyalty to and faith in God's word. You see, the word of God and the word of man are not really comparable, are they? God knows all things. We don't. God can do all he says. We can't. God is loving, true and faithful and committed to doing all he says, but we are self-interested and often unreliable because we are frail. God's word can be trusted to accomplish its purpose. Ours cannot be. And only God's word is a guide to what's pleasing to God, for only God knows himself. And God's not a dumb idol, a mere object to be discovered by us. No, he is living. How could we ever know better than the living God what pleases him or how we are to relate to him? To put the human word alongside or in place of God's word is really idolatry, putting the trust in the creature rather than the creator. But more than that, as the word of the creator, God's word is also the best guide to the life of human flourishing. For our God knows us and our world best, knows us completely. And he rules over all things and his judgments will prevail. So to substitute the human word for God's word as the guide to the good life, even if it seems to offer emancipation from God, is in the end to mislead and to fail to love people. So it's actually good if you ask yourself, and so in a sense this is an intellectual application of the truth of Scripture, it's good to ask yourself what is informing my understanding of a life pleasing to God? Oh, what's informing my understanding of the good life, the desirable life? Is it God's word or human words? If we're followers of Jesus, our Father wants us to grow up, to mature in our thinking, to stop being babes in thinking, childish in our thinking, to be adult in our thinking. And we do that by having our thinking about himself, ourselves, and how we live informed by his word. So, for example, if you, and this is just an example, but uh, they have a very strong view of tradition. If you have a Roman Catholic background, have you thought through whether what you believe is grounded in God's word or in human tradition? Do you think, for example, that church buildings are holy places and you ought to genuflect when you enter? Well, that thinking is based on the presence of the reserve sacrament in the church, not on scripture, on the lie that the reserve sacrament, that wafer, is the body, the presence of Jesus. That does not please God. Do you think of ministers as sacrificing priests? That has no basis in God's word but tradition and it dishonours the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Are what you believe about God grounded in the word of God or tradition? 
But for others of us, for example, are we critiquing what the world says is the good life in the light of God's word? The world's vision of the good life is all around us. Uh, here's an example. Uh, did I? Ah, did I go over that before? Oh, there you go. Uh, I couldn't resist this, actually, because it is just so gross. Okay? Uh, but there it comes. Discover paradise. Uh, one of the many evils to which the love of money is uh, gives rise to is, of course, the devaluation of language by advertisers. But anyhow, uh, discover paradise. I was struck by such a blatant lie. Because let's face it, brothers and sisters, anywhere you are is not paradise. And the reason for that will become apparent in the second half of Jesus' answer, right? But even though we can immediately see that it's an awful lie, for a start, you know, where are the mosquitoes, right? Uh, right? Uh, it actually gets into our head. Repeated lies get into our heads. And so what's this lie? is that the good life is found in experiences, preferably away from people, preferably free from responsibility, where we are all and only beautiful and toned and there are no poor or needy people. That's the good life. And it's wonderful. It's something money can buy. And it's all lies. That's not the good life at all. It's found in love and loving relationships with God and others. We have to learn to apply God's word to the message that we're receiving all the time from our society and other people about the good life. And to do that, we have to know the word. We have to take the time to think about it. You can never live, you see, at peace with God. Find the life of human flourishing where we were created to live where you make human words equal or a substitute for the word of God. But how is it that apparent zeal for the law could be corrupted into disobedience to the law? That the Pharisees' attempts to please God, to live the good life, actually become causes of their condemnation by God, threaten the good life they sought. Why will all attempts at the good life without God fail? Jesus tells us in verses 14 to 23, and I've been listening to a podcast, The Rest is History, and about this point in time in the podcast they have a break. And as I want you to get both these points, these are two big points for Christian thinking, okay, God's word, God's word alone, and a point about the human heart, we're going to have 60 seconds break where you can stand up, take a deep breath, because I know this is going to be a long sermon, right? I can count two just like you, right? Stand up, take a deep breath, because you'll need to concentrate. I want you to change your minds and be informed by Scripture. Okay. Okay, hopefully you are sufficiently intellectually refreshed because we're going to keep going, because this is really important. It's a kind of part of the foundation of Christian thinking about the world. Okay, so having demonstrated the truth of what he said, that despite their appearance of wanting to please God by their tradition, their use of that tradition showed how far their hearts were from God. Jesus now goes on to say, 
that the problem in the Pharisees' pursuit of purity, of their pursuit of the good life, was that they weren't even addressing the real source of defilement. What really makes us unclean, unfit for God's presence? Summoning the crowd again, he told them, listen to me, all of you, and understand nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now that saying's a little enigmatic, isn't it? And those who heard might relate the first part to the controversy they've just witnessed, Jesus' rejection of the need for hand washing. But the second part, that what goes out of the person or what defiles him, well, that's probably a little puzzling, at least to start with. Because let's face it, there are a whole range of things that come out of people, not just words and actions, all sorts of excretions and secretions and discharges and bodily fluids. Could Jesus be talking about these? Another source of physical defilement. So it is a little puzzling. So the disciples ask him about what he means. When he went into the house away from the crowds, the disciples asked him. And he said to them, Are you also as lacking in understanding? Don't you realise that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into the heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. Notice that in the answer, Jesus focuses on what's happening to the heart. But for first century people, the thinking, willing, feeling centre of a person, the source of their actions and attitudes. And he makes the point that what we eat, what goes into our mouths, however unwashed our hands are, can't defile a person. For physical things don't go into the heart. They get flushed into the loo, right? They stay separate from our inner being, from our will and thinking. And that's true, isn't it? What you touch or eat or breathe, those things don't defile. And Mark adds in the side, he's declared all foods clean. And, of course, that's a really important consequence uh, of what Jesus is saying here, one that took years to be worked out in the early church, one that laid the foundation for Jews and Gentiles to eat together. What you eat as a believer is now a matter of necessity and taste, not a matter of religious obligation and purity. But I'm not going to talk any more about that now because I want us to focus on what Jesus says does defile a person, makes them unclean, unfit for God's presence. What would exclude someone from God's people? Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of a people's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. So Jesus says it's not physical things that defile, but moral actions and attitudes that are inconsistent with God's righteousness and goodness, with his holiness. And Jesus lists six activities in the plural and six attitudes. Now, some are self-explanatory, like theft, murder, adultery, but others may need some thinking about. So I'm going to run through them quickly so you can see how common they are. So sexual immorality, notice that it's bigger than adultery, the fourth in the list. That's any sexual activity outside a marriage between a man and a woman, that defiles. And then it says greed, but it's actually acts of greed, of covetousness or avarice that can include possessing and using just for the sake of having it for yourself, always wanting 
and getting more than you need. Think of some shopping. Or evil actions. That actually has the sense of deliberate malice. So that would include bullying and racial abuse. And then there are attitudes or patterns of behaving, deceit, habitual untruthfulness, but also cunning, treachery, never being open and honest, self-indulgence, a lack of self-restraint that transgresses the boundaries of what's acceptable and enjoys doing it, whether that's in dress or conversation or spending money, envy, or it can also mean stinginess, a lack of generosity to others that can resent their success and happiness if it cannot be your own. Then it says slander or blasphemy. The word can be applied to people or to God and is more commonly applied to God and so it can mean disrespect of God, a denigration of God. And so, for example, when someone says, oh, God, if he's there, or assaults God's reputation with wild charges of injustice. That's blasphemy. Pride, arrogance, a conviction of one's own self-importance and the expectation that others treat you in line with your own sense of importance, your own privilege. And then it says foolishness, lack of sense, a moral and spiritual insensitivity that just doesn't want to think about God or the consequences of his or her actions on others. Taking drugs, getting drunk. Oh yes, even some practical jokes would rate as foolishness. Now this list is about 2,000 years old and it's so modern, isn't it? We can see all these actions and attitudes around us every day. We can even see them in ourselves. Jesus says these are the things that defile, that exclude us from the presence of the Holy God will make the good life with God impossible. And what is the source of this terminal defilement? And here's what is shocking and what I want you to engage with. It's not something out there external to us. It is our hearts, our wills, our own evil thoughts for from within, out of people's Hearts come evil thoughts. All these evil things come from within. We carry the source of our defilement with us. And while our hearts are as they are, far from God, committed to our own will, to loving ourselves and not our creator, to trusting ourselves and not our creator, we will always be defiled, unfit for God's presence, for they will always produce the fruit of evil thoughts. And nothing we can do from outside can change that. Going to a new town or country, now that might change your environment, your external external circumstances, and that can be helpful if they're the cause of your trouble, say you're being bullied at work or something, or right? But it doesn't change your heart. You take that with you. Turning over a new leaf, making and keeping New Year's resolutions. That might help you when you replace a bad habit with a good habit. You quit smoking, saying, yes, take up cycling. But it won't change your heart and it won't bring you closer to God. Making gifts to a good cause, even a church or mission, that won't change your heart. Fasting, that won't change your heart. Oh, no amount of washings, ritual or otherwise, will change your heart. Do you see how radical Jesus' view of the origin of defilement, and that's the origin of death, is? 
How radical is Jesus' view of the problem we have in coming into God's presence, in being at peace with God? Now, if you were a Pharisee, you are hearing Jesus say your project will fail. You can never obtain the good life, the life of peace with God, of knowing blessing and not judgment by keeping your tradition, by living by your rules. You cannot cleanse yourself from these sins and you cannot remove yourself from their source. In fact, it's because your heart is the way it is that your zeal for God, you're seeking to bring every part of life into conformity to God's law by your tradition has become a vehicle for setting aside God's law for furthering your rebellion against God. That's hard, isn't it? And it will always be the case unless your heart changes. But Jesus' statement goes beyond a criticism of the Pharisees and the futility of their reliance on the tradition of the elders to be right with God. It is everyone's heart he's talking about, not just the hearts of religious people or even people who believe in God. It's everyone's heart. And so if you're someone who wants to have an optimistic view of human nature to think that society is perfectible, if you want to think that if we could get the social conditions right or educate everyone properly, then they might be good things, let me say. But that won't make people always good. It won't make them always make constructive choices. Jesus' word spells the failure of your project. You see, our environment gives us a context in which we express our hearts, may make it easier or harder for some expressions of the heart to come to the surface, like malice, like the malice of racism or self-indulgent greed, pretty easy in our society, but they don't create the human heart which we have from Adam. And actually they don't change the human heart and that heart will always find expression. And if you're someone whose path to the good life is to turn people into themselves, to find meaning and direction within by being true to themselves, Jesus' words foretell the bitter end of that path because what you will find there in your heart is that restless love of self and the disordered desire it produces, and it will continue to produce bitter fruit, not happiness and contentment, produce actions and attitudes that, as you heard, destroy relationships, undermine trust, and may even seek to coerce others into approving and supporting your choices. Jesus' teaching here sets up, you see, an inevitable clash with all those who want to place their confidence in finding, attaining the good life in themselves or in other people. Take the Pharisees. They claim we can say what please they claim we can say what pleases God. Jesus says no. Your very attempt shows how far you are from God. Oh they claim we can do what deals with our uncleanness before God. Jesus says, no, what you do on the outside can't change the inside. Oh, they claim we have it in our power to live a life that pleases God, that will allow us to enjoy his favour, not his judgment. No, says Jesus, what you're doing defiles you and you cannot separate yourself from the source of those actions and attitudes. Or take the modern secularist who rejects God, whose vision of the good life excludes God. They claim we can know for ourselves the best way to live, 
Jesus says no. The human work can never compare with God's work, God's instruction on the best way to live. If you fall out with that, you're not alive with that, you'll never find the good life. Oh, they claim we can overcome by ourselves that tragic tendency of humans to destroy themselves and each other. No, says Jesus, you cannot get away from your heart and its evil thoughts will always produce that evil relationship-destroying, misery-bringing fruit. Oh, they claim we can secure our vision of the good life by bringing everyone into line with our thinking. Jesus says, no. You will never be able to do that. Never stop the evil thoughts or the envy or the malice or the pride, your own or that of others. And the attempts to do it by manipulating the environment of people's lives or lying persuasion or violent coercion will destroy what you are trying to create. Jesus' view of the human problem is radical and at odds with what our society wants us to believe about people, about us. It's radical but true, amply illustrated throughout history in every failed utopian scheme, amply illustrated in our own experience, isn't it? The constant pursuit and failure to obtain in our society lasting happiness and contentment. So have you accepted Jesus' radical diagnosis of the human condition? Have you accepted that he's actually speaking of your heart and the heart of those around you? And again, the challenge is to your thinking. But certain things will flow from accepting Jesus' diagnosis of the source of human defilement all pretty big. So you accept his diagnosis, you won't think you can save yourself. And so you'll actually be free from human rules, regulations and rituals that claim to be able to make you right with God, free from your uncleanness. Oh, you won't be sucked in by those who claim to be able to transform your life if you'll listen to their teaching or let them change your environment. You'll actually be freed from their often costly deceit. You won't entrust anyone with absolute power for you know that they have a human heart and so you'll support transparency and accountability for those in power. You won't think that teaching that turns you into yourself that says look within for guidance, put your trust in yourself will give you that life of human flourishing. You'll actually be freed accepting Jesus' diagnosis to look out to God and relationships with others for a life of meaning. Oh yes, and you won't be blaming others for the state of your heart. Be able to accept that even though you might be, you'll be able to accept that even though you might be sinned against, you are also capable of sinning. And so you'll be freed from self-pity to live a life where you can actually own your own life, be responsible for yourself. And accepting Jesus' diagnosis will actually do more. You'll be humbled, humbled enough to say, I can't fix myself. I can't find the life of peace with God, the life I was made for by myself. And being humbled, you'll be freed to cry out to God for help. For Jesus' teaching tells you you cannot save yourself, you cannot of your own initiative escape from your heart, that you need a new heart that only God can give you. That's right. You cannot do a heart transplant on yourself because what originates in your heart, your will, 
your decision to do that transplant on yourself will always have the character of your heart, a heart devoted to love of self. But you heard tonight God promise to give a new heart in Ezekiel 36. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances, what the Pharisees, for all their efforts, could not do. And this is what the Lord Jesus says he gives in John 3. And if you accept his diagnosis, if you find it true of your heart, you will long for his cure. You may remember that conversation with a bloke called Nicodemus. And he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. When he said that, he was telling Nicodemus that he needs what God promises to give in Ezekiel 36. Because you see, a heart of stone, the heart we have, is a dead heart, dead. So we need a new life, a new birth with a new and living heart. And it's the promises of Ezekiel 36 Jesus is referring to in verse 5 when he speaks of our need to be born of water and the Spirit. That is, we need that cleansing, our sins forgiven, to be cleansed of the defilement of our sinful actions and attitudes. And we need the Spirit to give us that new heart, that new life. And Jesus says here, this is a sovereign work of God, not man. It doesn't and can't originate in us. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit, not under our control. Now Nicodemus cannot see how this can come about. But Jesus actually knows and tells him at the end of the conversation, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is saying that this new life, this new birth, this new heart will come about through his death. His death will be the source of that cleansing. His death and resurrection will be the means by which the Spirit is given, will come to all who believe in him, all who abandon reliance on their own works, give up making human words the same as God words, who abandon trust in themselves to believe in Jesus, to rely wholly on Jesus. And I hope you know that repenting and believing in Jesus is not just turning over a new leaf, resolving to do better. It is being given a whole new life from a new source. It's being given the Spirit of God by the Lord Jesus, the Spirit who gives us a life that goes on to eternal life, the life of human flourishing in the presence of God. You see, in the end, there really are only two ways. There's the way of the Pharisees, the way of trust in self, in your own words, <laughs> your own truth, of trust in what you can do to ensure for yourself the good life, Trust in your own rule of your life. Or there's the way of Jesus, acknowledging that what is impossible for you is possible for God. And his word alone gives life and that he can forgive and give the new heart we need, the living heart that trusts and obeys our creator. Now, the Pharisees saw that. 
And they were sure they were right. They saw Jesus' threat to the good life. And in the end, they killed him as an enemy of the people, a danger to their peace and security, to their flourishing, just like, though you may not believe, just like modern people would kill him with his insistence on his authority and our radical helplessness. But the word of God is not like the word of man. Jesus said he would die and rise again, and God raised him from the dead. It's a true word. Jesus lives and reigns. His judgments are the judgments of God. His word, the word of the living God, that can bring life, eternal life, and is always sure. So, believer, let his teaching inform all your thinking about yourself, humbling as it may be, about God, about what the genuine human life, the best life looks like, even as he calls you to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. That is life he is calling you to. And don't confuse that word with the teaching, any teaching that has its origin with humans. The word of God stands alone. And if you are not yet a believer, well, hear Jesus' diagnosis on your heart. You are incurable of yourself and turn to him for the cure. The heart surgery only he can perform. The new life he alone can give, which he says he will give to all who believe in him. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly Father, We pray in your mercy that if we trust the Lord Jesus, we would take this word to heart and we would conform our thinking to it. We would know that your word alone tells us how we can relate to you, tells us the truth about ourselves and where we can find life. And we would know our desperate need and the desperate need of those we live amongst that we are incurable because of our sin, bound over to death unless you give us new life. And knowing that, speak of Jesus and the life he gives. Please conform our thinking to your word. And in your mercy, gracious Father, if there are any now who are still trusting in themselves, please show them the hopelessness of that and turn them to our Lord Jesus for the life he will so freely give. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.